Welcome to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, Torah with a Point of View, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, your host and dean of the Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles. We have a special treat today because we are joined by Rabbi Sally Prezand, the Rabbi Emeritus of the Monmouth Reformed Temple in Tinton Falls, New Jersey. Rabbi Prezand is the second woman in the modern age to be ordained as a rabbi and the first woman rabbi ordained in the United States. Rabbi Prezand, thank you so much for joining us. And I'd like to begin by asking you about some of the hidden assumptions that maybe you encountered only once you had already begun the journey of being a student rabbi. A lot of people thought they knew how I should act when mm-hmm. I was in rabbinic school and what I should be like and that I should be a raging feminist like because those were the days of the beginnings of feminism. I came to understand that there need to be two kinds of feminists. I mean, we all believe in the basic role of feminism that every person should have an opportunity to fulfill his or her God-given potential to the fullest. That's what, to me, what feminism is. So obviously I was a feminist in that way, but I wasn't one of the kinds of feminists out marching and all of those kinds of things, which some people thought I should be. What I came to understand is there have to be feminists who are out doing that, drawing attention to it. Then there have to be women who are willing to actually accomplish it. (laughs) Okay? And both are important. You have to have both. And I just developed into that kind of, I have to be focused, and I have to move forward. And I tried never to argue with anyone because it doesn't get you anywhere. You have to do, you just have to do it. And that's why I would always say when people would come up to me, and in those days, people certainly did come up to me a lot and say that there is no place for women rabbis. I would just listen and then I would walk away. Tell me about you inside you. When that's happening, are you fuming inside and exercising sheer discipline? Or is this a temperamental quality that's built into your character that you actually naturally were able to look them in the eye and sort of compartmentalize and move on? I don't remember being fuming. I just kind of accepted it. I maintained my sense of humor, which is very important. And I just tried to focus always on my goal. And when you were pressured from your feminist flank, as it were, were you experiencing feelings of confrontation, betrayal, or did you feel you had to justify yourself? Was that undermining you to then have to protect your other flank as well? I don't think it was undermining me. I I had a wonderful roommate, Sherry Levy Reiner. May she rest in peace. She married Rabbi, and um, unfortunately, she passed away recently. She's the only one who really knew everything the way it was, and she always kept me on the right path. And if there was something, but if there was something that she thought I should speak out about, she would make sure that I spoke out about it. Interesting. You came straight out of college, right? You did the college into I went. I went to the University of Cincinnati. Are you from Ohio? Yeah, I'm from Cleveland. They had the undergraduate program. It was the last year, I think, of that program before the Israel program started. So I took classes at HUC while I was at the University of Cincinnati, and that enabled me to skip 
one year of the rabbinic program. So one day I was an undergraduate, and the next day I was in the second year of the rabbinic program, and everybody was like, oh, she's still here. This was after the Jerusalem campus was built, but before the year in Israel was a requirement? That's correct. So you encounter a bunch of really boys, young men, (laughs) who thought they were going to join a club, a boys' club, a men's club, Were part of the challenges for them just the rude awakening of them, too, being on a vanguard that maybe you signed up for, but they didn't? Well, I never felt that they made me uncomfortable or anything. I mean, we were friends, especially the ones that went to the undergraduate program with me. Ah, so you knew them. So there was a small, it was just a small group of six or eight or whatever, And then eventually there were 35 men and me in my class. The faculty members were not accustomed to having a woman in the class. I remember some of them being quite comfortable, but some uncomfortable, and some who were just used to beginning the class, gentlemen, oh, and lady, (laughs) you know, that kind of thing. One of the classes, almost always, the professor called on me. I sometimes wondered if my male fellow students even prepared because they figured, well, Sally's going to get called on. So, (laughs) you know, I remember that. I remember that in my last year, Dr. Glick arranged for me to start speaking around the country. Mm. So I would miss classes, and my classmates would tape everything for me. So that I I wouldn't miss anything. And, you know, sometimes when there was a little off-color language or joke or something, they would turn off the recorder. They said, you know, you could hear the professor, they turn off the recorder. And then, wow. you know, and then later they would get back to me. <laughs> and all of this is also in the archives, I take it. Well, there's a lot in the archives. And some of it's with you? In the book that's coming out, one of my classmates wrote one of the chapters. And I think that'll be interesting to see. I think that... They think that I had a much harder time than I remember having. Interesting. I just remember that I always had to be better and do better than everybody else. I have an ability to forget some of those negative things and remember and focus more on the positive things and the fact that how lucky I really am because I've had the career that I wanted. I wanted to be a congregational rabbi, and I got to be in my congregation for 25 years. I mean, you know, what more? And, and truthfully, at the beginning, I always thought that my job, because I was the first, was to become the rabbi of a large congregation. You felt that pressure. I always felt that, that pressure. That was internal pressure. It wasn't yes. Now, well, I, you know, I don't know. I, I, I think we have to remember that everything I did, I was very conscious of the fact that this is how everyone else is going to judge women rabbis. That's a heavy burden to bear. That is. And most of the decisions in my life for a very long time were made on, in terms of what is best for women in the rabbinate not what's best for me. I felt that responsibility very, very strongly. I hear you saying with respect to your colleagues that you, together with them, were of a generation, and it seems like the time had come, and there wasn't much resistance at the level of 20-somethings in the mid-early 70s, really. You must have been aware then that you were opening floodgates. 
Uh, yes and no. I I never thought about that. I didn't I didn't do it to be the first to be a pioneer to be champion women's rights. I just wanted to be a rabbi and I wanted to be a, a congregational rabbi. And it really wasn't until about the third or fourth year that I began to realize what this meant. News media started following me around. They went with me to my student pulpit. They came to the college. And I do remember that once when they were at the college, uh, my uh, fellow students were jockeying as to who was going to sit next to me that day. You know, they were going, oh, no, no, I want to be in the picture. (laughs) You know, things things like that. And so you say you attribute your warm memories to the fact that maybe you can forget some of the less pleasant things. But maybe also that fundamental nose to the grindstone, I'm here to be a rabbi, I'm not here to be a pioneer, also perhaps protected you and kept you on the proverbial straight and narrow. Well, I, I think so. But but then there came a time when I realized I was going to be the first. And there are responsibilities that come with being the first. And, you know, a lot of people used to call me the Jackie Robinson of Judaism. It's good company. And, yeah, <laughs> I think so. Great company. You know, there were many times when people would recognize me on the street And I'm a very private person, so it was very difficult for me to accept that part of this. It's sort of the paradox of my personality that I chose to have a career that would make me out there in the the spotlight. Tell me a little bit about the fact that you got to witness together with many of us the revolution in gay rights. And I wonder if you can think a little bit out loud with me about how echoes of your career play themselves out in terms of the gay rights in the rabbinate in particular? Well, I think that there's a direct connection. I feel that opening the door for women also opened other doors and that we've been able to build on that and continue to make progress. Did people refer back to you or call you explicitly as they were facing challenges in achieving gay rights? Not in the, that particular area. No. no, not really. Not so much. Not really. Interesting. One of the fondest memories I have is in my congregation. It was really a commitment ceremony that, right. that we did. Two men who had been together for 25 years and on their 25th anniversary at the temple had the ceremony and everybody's there because they were very, very active in the temple. At that, to me, was one of the highlights of my rabbinate. And later, when the laws were changed, the law in New York was changed before the law in New Jersey. They had moved to Atlanta. They called and asked me if I would uh, come to New York and do their marriage ceremony now that it was fully legal. They would have come to our temple, but it wasn't legal yet in right. New Jersey. Right. So, you know, those are the kinds of relationships that you're able to make in the rabbinate and you never really know how you touch people's lives. I had some people come to me and they had been married 25 years. I married them. They quoted what I said. I I mean, I was, I was so shocked. Couples that I married when I was in New York, they tracked me down so that I could marry their children too. Wow. And those, that's what it's, what it's all about. These kinds of relationships. And you ended up in Monmouth where you were able to foster deep relationships with the whole community. You were the solo rabbi there? 
Yes, I was the, the only rabbi, and that brings me back to something I didn't answer before. When I was interviewed, they also thought it was probably a stepping stone that I was going to go on to some big congregation, oh, you know, and so everything. They felt vulnerable in hiring And you. so they thought about that, but it was, you know, it was okay. Did they feel I, like They pioneers? taught, I think, you now you see what was so good about Monmouth Reform Temple is that they accepted me as a rabbi. Mm-hmm. I was their rabbi. They made uh, allowances for occasions when I had to appear at some, you know, historic place or some event or something like that. But it really wasn't, uh, especially since I was there so long, it wasn't until I went out to the conventions and things like that where I felt like, oh, I'm I'm the first woman rabbi, you know. I would get in an elevator, people would say, that's her. <laughs> you know, and so, and different things like that. You know, in the in the early years, this year when I went, I thought, okay, not going to have any trouble this year at the biennials, going because I'm getting older and the people are younger. I never took so many selfies in my life. Everybody, oh, you're a rock star. This, so it was very, it was interesting. That's gratifying. Too. Um, it is, but my temple taught me that success doesn't mean bigger. You know, in rabbinic school, it was always, you got to get the big congregation eventually. But my congregation taught me that success really only means, are you doing better today than you did yesterday? So as long as they accepted my ideas, they let me experiment, be creative, all of those kinds of things, I felt quite good about staying there for my career. It was like a family. And that's why when I retired, I didn't move away. I'm still there in the community. Well, that sounds like quite a rabbinate. I do want to say on behalf of the Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion, and the Los Angeles campus, what a pleasure it has been to get to know you and to have you here and uh, to look forward to other opportunities for our paths to cross. Thank you. It's been a pleasure for me. You've been listening to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and please join us again at collegecommons.huc.edu.